on This Calling, Episode 2. So I'm Lydia, and I'm on the ordination track at Virginia Theological Seminary, and I'm from the Diocese of South Dakota. Welcome to This Calling, Conversations About Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. I believe God calls us each to our own unique path in this life. I love to listen to the stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. Maybe these stories will help you with your own journey as you follow God's calling in your life. In this episode, I talk to Lydia Hurd-Simmons. Here's our conversation. All right, so you are at Virginia. What what year are you in? I am halfway through my Midler years, so just just past the halfway point of seminary. How did you wind up at seminary? What's your story? Well, I grew up in the church. I've been a cradle Episcopalian. I grew up um, going to the cathedral in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and was an acolyte and was a part of the youth programs. I also went to church camp in the summer and did happenings um, during the year in the Diocese of Fond du Lac. And so I have always been really engaged in the church, but I was 100% sure that I was going to be a doctor. That's what I always wanted to do. I've loved science and math. And just after I turned 16, my now sending rector um, approached me and said, I think you're called to ordain ministry. And well, I'm at 16. At 16, yeah. And I laughed and walked away. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be a doctor. <laughs> Precisely. And so then I spent the next three weeks right after that, actually. Um, I spent a week on the Pine Ridge Reservation with um, brothers from the Tizay Monastery, as well as people from around the country and around the world. And then I spent a week in New York with my high school youth group, um, exploring what faith looks like in a different context from our own. And then I spent a week at church camp in the Diocese of Fond du Lac. And by the end of that week, I remember sitting down with one of my closest friends and one of my closest counselors at church camp. And I said, I think I might be called to ministry. Wow. And so um, I started discerning a call um, to ordain ministry just before my junior year of high school. So what was it about those three weeks? Was was one of those three weeks more instrumental or did they blur together in this like like a boot camp of discernment, it sounds like? Pretty much that boot camp feel. Um, each week was so vastly different from the others. So the first week was really, um, I had been helping with some of the planning. I had been leading a Tizay service for a few years by that point. And so I was really excited to be in and among all these people worshiping in the beautiful Badlands and talking about reconciliation and faith and, you know, living and breathing the prairie for a week was just extremely powerful. And one of those thin places where the space between you and God seems almost non-existent. And um, then while we were in New York, it was a completely, vastly different experience. Um, I went from being one of the youngest people at the Tizay event to one of the oldest um, youth group members on pilgrimage. And so my role kind of shifted and throughout the week participated in worship. And one of the hallmark moments of that week was being at St. John the Divine doing their night lock program, which they still do. And having the opportunity to serve as a chalice in a very dimly lit sanctuary at St. John the Divine while music was playing. And I just remember feeling so struck by the community and the communion and the sacrament. I was in tears. And then when I went to church camp, um, I had been wrestling with some other things in my personal life. Um, 
I had had a few years previous, um, a good friend commit suicide and I had never really grappled with that idea of how can a God that supposedly loves us so much, let something like this happen to us. Um, and let something like this happen, um, within somebody's own self. And, um, after a sermon at camp about how God wants the best for each and every one of us, I remember I thought I was going to be calm, cool, and collected. <laughs> I ended up approaching the chaplain for the week, Father Eric Mills, in tears and probably close to hysterics and said, you know, how can God let this happen? And explained about my friend. And Father Eric held my hands and said, God wants the best for each and every one of us, but he lets us have free will. And sometimes that breaks his heart. And everything that had kind of been thrown at me over the last few years before that all kind of came crashing together at that moment. And I remember having a really long walk with um, a really close friend of mine, Abe Johnson and um, father, Aaron Walter, and we just talked it out and talked it out and talked it out. And um, by the end of it, it just, it felt so much like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders and that God was, I was able to listen to God for the first time um, without those blocks in my way. Um, And it's just because someone took the time to listen and meet me where I was. And that, that moment at camp was just really profound for me. And every time I go back to the campsite, I can't help but think of that moment. And, um, so after that, I, um, felt more open and more willing to hear, um, kind of what God's call and plan was in my life. And so that was a really unique kind of start to it. Um, I was very interested in exploring um, bivocational ministry, mm-hmm. especially um, the vocational diaconate um, and serving alongside um, a medical field. So working in the medical field alongside serving in the church um, was what I thought I was called to do. I was very confident about that. When I entered college, um, our joke when I was giving tours was that the only people who know 100% what they're doing with their life is first semester college freshmen. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And so um, I spent two years, actually, um, as a nursing major, exploring the medical field, working in a hospital, um, in a medical, surgical, and trauma unit as a nurse's assistant. And I was very actively fighting God's call in my life. And um, through the help of some wonderful mentors, um, as well as working in a church with children um, three days a week in Cusco, Peru, while I lived there my sophomore year of college, um, I ultimately discerned that not only was ministry my calling, and helping others in ministry instead of helping others in the medical field. But I was called and drawn to the sacraments. And I felt at that time um, that I was definitely called to ordained ministry through the priesthood in the Episcopal Church and began the formal application process about two weeks after returning from Peru. And so that was still your sophomore year in college. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So that um, I was beginning um, the discernment process at the diocesan level, my junior year of college. Um, my college campus ministry program also had a discernment program um, where they brought Lutheran seminary representatives, and we met once a month to discuss discernment, have Bible studies together, and. So I participated in both of those, and I formally applied for postulancy early in my senior year of college and um, toured seminaries that 
my senior year, and then I graduated college in May of 2018 and began seminary um, the beginning of August 2018. Wow. So out of the frying pan into the fire. (laughs) All right. I'm trying to keep an eye out for church buzzwords because I'm assuming most of the people who will be listening to this will be Episcopalian, but um, not necessarily. So tell me what is, what is a postulant? What, what are these stages of uh, the journey towards ordination? Yeah, so there's a couple of different stages. Um, there is someone who is an aspirant or someone who is interested in um, entering the ordination process. And that stage includes quite a bit of discernment. Um, I worked with a group of people on the diocesan level, as well as my local priest um, in that discernment. Um, And then you apply to be a postulant, which means that you have your parish and your diocesan support to apply to seminary, to attend seminary um, with the ultimate uh, ultimate intent after discernment and coursework and formation. Uh, to be ordained. And then the next step in my um, vocational journey will be to interview and hopefully, God willing, be accepted as a candidate, which means that it's just one more step closer to ordination, that you have completed the majority of your coursework, the majority of the requirements for ordination, and it's a mark that you are continuing to make progress towards ordination. And then there is a, um, the next step is called an ordinand where you are preparing for ordination. Um, usually most dioceses set an ordination date at this point, and then you will be ordained to the transitional diaconate and serve in that capacity, learning all about the ways that deacons enrich the worship and the community life of the church. And then um, after six months to a year, um, God willing, I will be ordained to the priesthood. All right. That's a lot of stages. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Tell me about the Diocese of South Dakota. I've been through South Dakota. I've driven through it, but I don't know anything about the diocese. The Diocese of South Dakota is really unique and diverse. And it's in the middle of what some at seminary here jokingly call Lutheran land. Um, (laughs) South Dakota is the largest evangelical Lutheran synod in the country. And so a large amount of our churches, as well as our communities, have Lutheran congregations in them or have some ecumenical engagement, Um, especially since the ELCA is in full communion with the Episcopal Church which means we have the ability to both pastor and minister um, and administer the sacraments in these congregations um, and it's reciprocal. So the Lutheran churches and the Episcopal churches have longstanding relationships, especially on the missions in South Dakota. Um, but over half of our congregations are what are called mission congregations, um, which means that they are integrated and part of the diocese. And um, in South Dakota, the majority of those congregations are on the reservations. Okay. We have um, a number of reservations and a number of our churches are on the reservation. And then our fastest growing congregation in the diocese um, for the last couple of years, at least, ha- is a Sudanese congregation located in Sioux Falls. Oh, okay. That is diverse. Huh. So even at the cathedral, um, every Sunday, we had a right one service and a right two service. So a more traditional service from the Episcopal prayer book, a more contemporary language service from the prayer book. And then we had a service called Tiosh Pewakan. And that service was a hybrid linguistic and cultural English Lakota service. 
Um, So it was begun in 1991 by Dr. Martin Brokenleg. And so there are certain things that are used in that service that are unique to that service alone. So in place of the confession and absolution, most weeks they will do smudging of sage, which in Lakota culture is used as a purifier and is believed to purify and cleanse um, our spirits and our lives. And um, instead of the hymn of praise at the beginning of the service, if we have musicians present, uh, the prayer of four directions will be sung and drummed in Lakota. Wow. Have to get out to Sioux Falls and experience that. It's a really wonderful, unique, diverse service. And this is, you know, the sort of services I was surrounded by growing up in the church. And um, it's such a blessing to have been raised in a diocese that really embraces the diversity of the church. So how did you wind up in Virginia? That's a long way away from home. I very much did not want to go to Virginia. (laughs) I was adamant that I was not interested in Virginia Seminary. And my bishop said that Virginia was the only seminary I had to apply to. And I had to interview there. And I said, well, okay, I will for you. And since you are the bishop, I will do that. Um, But I was fairly confident I was going to go to Yale or I had looked at a few um, Lutheran programs that had Episcopal studies programs as well. And when I came out to tour at Virginia Seminary, I stayed with a former camp counselor of mine from the Diocese of Fond du Lac, um, Bobby Craft. And I was only supposed to be here for 24 hours. And I was really caught off guard by how much the campus was really what I was looking for. And was really kind of what I was hoping to experience. And I jokingly said at dinner right before I was supposed to take the train to Yale that I really wish I could spend more time at Virginia. About five minutes later, God, with his sense of humor, had plenty of snow and the train to Yale was canceled. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I got stuck at Virginia for three more days. Well, And by the end of it, after sitting in on classes and being a part of the community, I had fallen in love with the real, intentional, very Episcopal discernment and formation that happens here. Hmm. So tell me about the shape of your life as a seminarian. So you're in your second year. You're taking classes and engaging in worship and working out in a parish somewhere? What are, you, what are you doing with your days? So it's a little flippant, but the kind of mantra of Virginia Seminary is chapel, class, lunch, coffee. And Sounds good to me. That's kind of our communal life here at seminary. So uh, we worship together. All of the faculty um, and students at Virginia Seminary, for the most part, all live on campus. And so we live together. We worship together every day. We, each student attends at least one worship service a day. We offer morning prayer, Eucharist, and evening prayer every Monday through Friday, every school day. And then we have lunch together every day. Monday through Friday, and that's all of the students and faculty and staff. So you really get to engage with the full diversity of the campus at those times. And then we attend classes. So this year I'm taking classes in things like systematics, which is the study of different types of theology and how they interact with our faith and our daily lives. preaching classes, liturgics classes, studying how we actually do liturgy and kind of the nuts and bolts of what worship 
looks like for the church and why we do what we do. And then I also serve at a wonderful parish in North Arlington, um, St. Mary's. And um, in the fall, I was there 12 hours a week. And this coming semester, I will be serving at St. Mary's 24 hours a week. So my days are pretty full between being at St. Mary's and being here on campus, um, trying to participate in the worship life. Um, I sing in the choral ensembles here which is something that is an absolute blessing to me and helps maintain my sanity. And then um, as a part-time side job, I work in our campus pub. We have an on-campus pub. And so I work as a server and bartender there part-time during the school year as well. That is an awful lot on your plate. So 24 hours at the parish. And then all the other stuff? Wow. Yes. Yeah. So this coming semester, I'm really looking forward to taking um, a course from the Dean of the Seminary on um, systematic theology. And then um, I'm taking a liturgics class, pastoral care across cultures, which is going to be exploring what unique things we as ministers bring to the table um, for pastoral care. And what unique things our parishes might be needing as far as pastoral care for a diversity of cultural reasons. And then I'll be taking a liberation theology class as well. Is it all Episcopalians at at Virginia? Do you have people from other backgrounds and traditions? Yeah. So one of um, my favorite parts about BTS is that we have a variety of faculty and students that are from different denominations. Um, We have faculty from Lutheran, Baptist, Presbyterian, and Episcopal, of course, traditions. And then we have um, classmates from non-denominational Lutheran and Baptist traditions as well. I think that's the gambit right now. So. Um, We also have a really diverse showing of international students. So I have classmates from Haiti, Sri Lanka, um, Tanzania. So there's classmates from all over the world. And it's a really uniquely diverse place to learn and engage with each other in formation. So did you go straight from college to seminary or did, was there any break in between? I went straight from college to seminary. Hmm. So I worked at a coffee shop for the <laughs> summer between college and seminary and saved up a little bit of money and then picked up. I went to college actually in my hometown. So when I moved to seminary was the first time that I had ever lived outside of South Dakota. Wow. And um, so it was a really unique, unique experience, both um, culturally being from a smaller area in the country, like South Dakota, um, growing up out in the country to living eight miles from the Washington Monument <laughs> is definitely a very different culture. Um, but also I had attended my sending parish, the church that I went to before coming to seminary in South Dakota. Um, from the time I was born until I came to seminary. So I had never had to find a new church until I moved across the country. What so it, has that process been like? It's, I mean, it's a big deal to, to wind up in the new congregation. Yeah. So the first year of seminary, um, we are not in a congregation for our work at all. And so they have us exploring different churches, um, church shopping, as we call it. And we go to a different church um, virtually every Sunday, looking to see what things churches do that we like, what things we don't like, what we, what we were hoping to get out of our field education experience. And so I learned a lot about what the diversity of the church looks like in certain parts of the country versus other parts of the country. And so growing up in South Dakota, I was very, very used to having a a high indigenous population in the church and having that diversity and 
Um, that was not necessarily the case when I came to Northern Virginia, which is a heavily, heavy, heavily affluent, say that five times fast and <laughs> I'll a <edit> heavily <laughs> rich <laughs> and a heavily, yeah, reels rich, um, and a heavily white Episcopal, um, landscape. And so it's, it's been difficult to adjust to something new, but I have learned a lot about welcome and in the church, what welcome looks like and what being welcoming to a variety of people, what being systematically welcoming versus individually welcoming looks like Mm -hmm. and how that feeling can make or break someone's experience at your congregation. So that was extremely helpful as somebody who hopes to be working in a church someday and strives to be welcoming to all people. Yeah. So what, what are the plans? Are you going to go back to South Dakota or are you going to strike out wherever the, wherever the spirit takes you? So that's kind of up in the air. Um, (laughs) For Episcopalians, the, person that the seminarian um, works with most in their diocese is their bishop. And the bishop has a lot of say in what the process looks like and what immediately after ordination looks like for a seminarian. And my diocese went through the electing process for a new bishop this past year. And in November, we consecrated or ordained the 11th bishop of the Diocese of South Dakota. And so I have been getting to know and um, having conversations with our new bishop about what the next 18 months while I'm in seminary will look like. And then after seminary, I think that the bishop's ultimate hope is that I will come back to South Dakota after seminary. So there is a lot of work um, and a lot of parishes that are searching for clergy, especially in more rural areas or on the reservations. And one of my degree areas of study here at seminary is new mission practices. So exploring the different ways that we can serve the mission of God in the world, and especially in cross-cultural contexts. And so the hope that we are currently exploring is that I will end up back in South Dakota when I graduate, which would be a blessing and also extremely challenging. Yeah. I of course hope that we can convince you to come here to Fond du Lac, but that's uh, that's a subject <laughs> for, for another, another discussion. Uh, but I want everyone to wind up in the diocese of Fond du Lac because that's where I am. Um <laughs> So you are pretty young as Episcopal church seminarians go. I think when I was at seminary uh, 10 years ago, I think the average age was, you know, up in the 50s or something like that. I was, I was young and I was in my 30s. Um, what, what are the sort of, what's the average age of the student body now? And what's it like to be so, uh, so young, like a first career priest? That seems to be pretty rare. Uh, in the Episcopal Church circles that I know of? Definitely. So um, kind of like you said, first career, the majority of um, seminarians are second career. I think the average age of our class is in their mid-30s. So I am the only first career seminarian in my class. Um, We have one other student who's close to my age, And she received her master's degree in social work before coming to seminary. So there's a couple of us here on campus that are first career, um, but largely, like you said, it is second career. Um, It's a unique challenge being this young. So I began seminary at 22. Yes, 22. Trying to do the math right. And so I will graduate seminary at 24. 
which is actually the minimum age for ordination in the Episcopal church. So like you mentioned, very much on the young end, um, it means that a lot of the formation that most people do in their first job after they graduate college, kind of figuring out who they are as an adult in the world um, is something that I am doing alongside my formation for ministry. And so it has meant that I have spent a unique amount of time forming myself and my identity and my personal identity as well as what my identity as an ordained minister will be. And I think that um, I have been very blessed to have um, a wonderful spiritual director, as well as some really amazing faculty mentors here at Virginia that have continually pointed out and highlighted the need for the both formations. Um, the concern, obviously, would be to be formed only in my identity as an ordained minister. So I could be the priest Lydia and that primary identity being my vocation. Um, However, I think that the healthiest clergy that I have known have been those that are still very much rooted in their personal identities and their personal hobbies and interests and have healthy lives um, in the community outside of church. Um, And so have kind of the mentality of Lydia, the priest. And so it's been really unique and really formative to kind of have both of those formations happening at the same time. and. It's been challenging for me, especially coming right out of undergrad, to move beyond just the academics Mm, mm -hmm. of seminary. Um, While it's important to absorb as much information as possible and to really engage and internalize that, there is such a larger component of residential seminary, which is the formation and the kind of spiritual development that also happens alongside the academic development. And so moving beyond only being academic minded to being mindful of my formation as a whole. Um, And so the last 18 months I have gone through quite a bit of formation and I think everybody in seminary does. But I think that especially first career seminarians are in a really unique position and especially since it is a fairly rare position to be in, in the Episcopal church. So what's been the hardest part of your journey so far? I think the hardest part has been giving up and giving into what God is calling me to do. I am a very, very type A person And I like having order and plans and schedules. And I had a very, very hard time in college pulling God along with me, as I thought, (laughs) to my career that I was bound to be a part of. Instead of listening to where God was calling me to lean into and Sometimes those weren't always the most comfortable places to lean into, but I think it's fighting my instinct to be in the driver's seat and to just let go and trust that I'm in the right place and that I am doing the work and the hard work of formation and discernment. And that is sufficient to listening to God's call. Mm. Yeah, I once read a, a little commentary on on um, the the bit in the Bible where God calls Abraham and sends Abraham off in a completely different direction. And the commentary was like, you know, 
Abraham was on his way somewhere else. Like he, he had plans that day. And yet God said, you're, you know, nope, you're going to, you're going to do this whole different thing. And Abraham said, okay. But like he had, he had a plan, like he had his week and his year probably pretty well mapped out and had to let all that go because, you know, God had a, a different plan. So, yeah, I think every, every calling, I wonder if as, as these episodes unfold, I wonder how much of that we're going to hear as a common theme, like relinquishing whatever we think is going to be happening because uh, God is <laughs> taking us somewhere else. One of the first things we explored in our um, August term seminary course was call narratives. And we read um, the book of Jonah all the way through in one sitting. And then at the end of it, the professor asked, how many of you ran from your call like Jonah did? <laughs> I love The number Jonah. of hands that went up in the room was... Yep. As many as you would expect. <laughs> Good old Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> so conversely, what's been the greatest joy? What's, what have you discovered uh, you didn't expect, but has been the brightest, uh, shiniest, happiest part of this calling? I would say the community life has just been such a blessing. And knowing that we are all here together and we are all doing the hard work of discernment and formation. And some days it seems impossible, but yet we are all together and we're all doing the same thing, even though we're on our own paths and knowing that these will be the people that will be part of my ministry community. Um, I think that congregations should be reassured that your your priest is not standalone. They are not a singular, you know, an island on their own. They are so interconnected. And having these friends that have had a diversity of experiences and so many different life experiences that I could never even imagine to have uh, and yet, this is my pool of resources to draw from when I get into ministry and when I'm having a complete blank on something that I've never experienced before. I guaranteed to have had encountered somebody who I sat next to in the coffee shop. I prayed with them in chapel. I ate with them and laughed with them at lunch. And I lived alongside them for three years. And I think that that has just been the greatest joy is just getting to wrestle with the hard work of formation together. How has your prayer life changed? Both in terms of the practices that you do, but then like the quality, the, the, hmm, the way you are with God. So I've always been a very comfortable corporate prayer person, have always been actively involved in Sunday worship. And so I got to seminary and thought I had a pretty good idea of what my prayer life looked like. And um, the one thing that I realized that I had been doing for years and just had never named is I argue with God a lot. And the story in the Bible of wrestling by the riverside with the angel is pretty much what I do with God all the time. And I find that I have been able to label things that I never would have considered prayer as prayer because I've been able to let go of certain ideas of constraints that were on prayer. So growing up and in college, I thought prayer was one thing, you know, it was sitting in silence with your hands folded, you know, giving thanks to God and asking for intercession and then going to church on 
Sunday and receiving communion. While those are two types of prayer, there is such a diversity of prayer. And so I have really begun to engage wholeheartedly with all of the types of prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. I found a lot of comfort in doing um, write one morning prayer every morning. And I end my day with Compline, or at the very least, the um, prayer, the keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch Mm -hmm. or weep this night, prayer every night. And I have really found a lot of strength in prayer and physical activity. So I find that I can have lots of conversations with God when I'm putting my body physically to work. And so when I'm running, I have some of my best conversations with God or when I am um, in worship, I find that when I am physically engaged in my prayer, that I have the best conversations with God because I am I am whole bodily engaging it. And so I think that my prayer life has has transformed in the in what I would label and consider prayer. And it also has just deepened and enriched the conversation with God from what I thought was the conversation with God, which was the, you know, when I sat down and prayed and did my prayers to when I am angry and confused and frustrated and upset all the way to when I'm overjoyed and in complete bliss, those moments of recognition and conversation with God have come a lot more naturally to me because of just the practice of it and going to corporate worship every day and having a consistent private prayer life. And I think that making it a practice is what has helped strengthen and deepen that, not necessarily physically coming to seminary. So way back at the beginning, you were talking about the advice or the um, the answer to your very tough question that you got from Father Eric about uh, your friend's suicide. Uh, what answer would you give if you, the younger you, were to ask you now that same question? I think that I would probably stick with one of Father Eric's, you know, core bits of that is God loves each and every one of us and God wants us to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And in order to love our neighbor as yourself, you also must love yourself. And I think that that's the ultimate hope of God. But once again, we have a broken world and a world full of humans and imperfect humans. And so we just must continually strive to love in those three ways. And I think that. I think that kind of reassurance would have been really helpful when I was spiraling, not knowing what I was doing or why someone would even think that I'm called to ordain ministry. So Hmm. to what advice do you have for, uh, for anyone coming up the the young, young woman out there at, uh, at college who's thinking maybe I'm going to not, wind up as a nurse or a physician, but I'm going to wind up at seminary. What's your advice? My advice would be to listen to God and the many ways that God speaks to you through other people, 
through your own experiences and through your prayer life and try to take things that people say with a grain of salt. I think that one of the most difficult things for me to accept was that there were going to be people who didn't necessarily agree with my ordination because of my age, because I don't have enough life experience to be a minister and their preconceived idea of what a priest must look like, you know, a middle-aged male who wears the black suit and the black clericals every day. And that's, that's a lot of people's image of clergy. And I think that my advice would just be to try and tune some of that out and really discern what God is calling you to do and then just go for it. Just go for it. I like that. Just go for it. What's the worst (laughs) that can happen? Exactly. All right. So then wrap up questions. These are just a couple of quick ones right at the end and then we are nearly done. How can people reach you if they want to get a hold of you? Uh, Social media, blogs, all that stuff. So I am on Facebook as Lydia Hurd, H-I-R-D Simmons. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter as Lydia.Hurd. And um, forewarning, most of my posts are just like studying Greek again today. Um, not super thrilling, but I really am excited to talk to people about, um, cross-cultural ministry. I lived in South America for six months and this past summer I served on the Rosebud Reservation. And I also, um, have a real passion for talking to people about their call and, um, young ordination and, listening to that call as a teenager. So I would be more than happy to talk with anybody about that. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Fun thing. What is a piece of popular culture, a book, music, movie, video game? Uh, what other things are popular culture? What, yeah. What do you recommend? Just recommend us something. What's good. I have been super into this podcast right now called Potterless. And I'm a Harry Potter nerd to begin with, but this is a podcast about an adult who never read the Harry Potter books, who goes through reading them for the first time and externally processing all of the like crazy, ridiculous things that happen. So that has been my like big binge right now is listening to the Potterless podcast. Um, How many, how many episodes in are you? I am halfway through the fourth book. Okay. So I don't remember how many episodes that is. There's also an amazing podcast that I listen to while I run called Two Fab, which is two feminists annotate the Bible. Okay. And they go through books in the Bible and they talk about the historical and the cultural meanings and the different ways that theologians are now interpreting this, or it's been historically interpreted. And they have finished the entire Bible, and they also have now started two feminists annotate the beatified, which is Hmm. all about female saints. Cool. And talking about their lives and their journeys and their calls. So I've been super into those podcasts recently. All right. So that's been great. And something for you that is not, it is, it is very bizarre for a wider audience, but it is called Velocipaster and it's a movie (laughs) about a priest who can turn into a dinosaur. Perfect. And it is like a C rated movie. Like it's absolutely terrible, but it's hilarious. (laughs) And you should totally watch it because we've definitely watched it four times in the last three days. Oh, good. That should be required watching at every seminary. Exactly. Oh, I'll ask the bishop if we can watch that at the uh, at the clergy retreat right before Lent. That'd be great. You should. We used it the other night 
to talk about our canon law class and whether or not you are still um, canonically required to follow Title IV when you turn into a dinosaur as a priest? Well, that's a great question. What, what do you eat when you turn into a dinosaur? Uh, he was eating other people. So, Oh, yeah. See, that's definitely a Title IV violation. Exactly. I'm sure there's something in the canons about that. Can't be. This <laughs> is um, yeah. activity unbecoming of a priest. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it would bring scandal and disrepute upon the church. Big old Title IV violation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, Tig is ready for his long walk. All right. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Lydia Hurd Simmons. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with her, be sure to look in the show notes for all the links to all the social medias. You can reach me if you want to on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods. The intro music is Cheerful by Bird, Bird, Bird. And the closing music that you're hearing now is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. Look for a new episode soon. I'm Chris Arnold, and I'll talk to you next time on This Calling.